This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm the Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program at Wharton. And I'm joined via Zoom today by my good friend and colleague, Mike Yusin. How are you, Mike? Uh, Jeff, I am doing great under the circumstance. All right. Well, it's, it's good to be with you here in this uh, virtual setting. Uh, we'll remind listeners that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. That's at SXM Business. All right, Mike, we have um, a show I'm really excited for today. Uh, and our guest, who I'll bring on in just a couple minutes, is John Mackey, uh, who is the CEO of Whole Foods, but also um, the author of a new book on conscious leadership. And um, this book on conscious leadership follows uh, John's work on conscious capitalism from a number of, uh, not a number of years, but a few years back. And, and Mike, I, maybe as we get started, and, and um, we'll certainly bring John into this part of the conversation as well, but um, you and I had a lot of dialogue uh, about a year ago as the Business Roundtable issued its statement about the long-term focus um, of business. And um, as we sit here today, I wonder, you know, obviously much has changed in the world, uh, including the pandemic that we are all uh, struggling through, as well as the conversations around uh, racial justice here in, here in the United States and the rise of populism around the world. Um, what role, and so this isn't a warm-up question, Mike, I'm just going right to the meat. Uh, what role do you feel like that statement from the Business Roundtable had, um, and um, what role does it have for you today? Well, compliments to our guests, because John Mackey was years ahead of the Business Roundtable, conscious capitalism, many of the ideas captured in now this uh, famous statement from the Business Roundtable as of last summer that essentially said companies have got to obviously think about uh, owners and shareholders, but it's a mistake if they don't think about suppliers, customers, communities, and well beyond. And John has been on this particular uh, track for many years. So compliments to our guest in that he, uh, he got us thinking about that way back. And on the business roundtable, it's actually really good to see the statement, even if there's now <laughs> a lot of cynicism about the execution of it. So I think the whole world is watching to see what the business roundtable is going to do with the statement that it's made. Having said that, John has uh, lived his own statement uh, through his uh, great enterprise. We're all familiar with it, uh, Whole Foods. We've all shot there. All right. Well, with that, let's welcome John Mackey onto the show. John, how are you today? Uh, today, I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? Right. Uh, also, I, in this moment, I'm doing pretty well, too, and I'm, I'm really Glad to be having this conversation with you and with Mike. Let's just keep it going for the next moment, too. All right. That's, that, sounds, that sounds great. So, 
John, um, I, I want to say a, a couple words uh, about you here. You know, this book, as, as I mentioned in the open, this book, Conscious Leadership, Elevating Humanity Through Business, um, is, you know, it's certainly a work unto itself, but also emanates from the, the very successful book you did called Conscious Capitalism. Also led you to the co-founding of the nonprofit Conscious Capitalism Incorporated. Uh, your career, your life has been devoted to selling natural and organic foods and building better business models. Um, and if, if I'm not mistaken, the, this month, September 2020, marks the 40th anniversary of the opening of the very first Whole Foods Market store. Is that right? Yes, the first Whole Foods Market. We had a pre precursor to that called Safer Way, uh, which was two years before that. But yep, 40th anniversary for Whole Foods. All right. So congratulations to you on that. You are the CEO and, and co-founder of the Whole Foods Market. Um, and, and John, so as, as you sit here today in September of, of 2020, and you look back on, you know, the, the 40th anniversary, these 40 years, um, maybe we can just get started and say, what do you think some of the events are that led you to write this book about conscious leadership? What are some of the events from, from your last four decades? Well, 40 years is difficult to try to summarize. So I'm going to skip most of those decades and just say that after we wrote Conscious Capitalism, which was published in 2013, uh, we had two sets of questions that came in quite a bit uh, to me personally when I'd be talking about Conscious Capitalism. First of all, a lot of people really liked the two chapters. We had two chapters on conscious leadership in that in that book, and those were very popular chapters. So because it's mostly business people that read this book, they want to know how to operationalize conscious capitalism. So it's not just a theory, but but how do you actually lead this way? And we had a couple of chapters, but they wanted a lot more. Mm -hmm. And so this book, Conscious Leadership, is basically our attempt to help people to become conscious leaders. That it's, it's, and one way to think about it is that um, business people are very busy. Most leaders are very busy. They, they, every day they create a task list that they attempt to, to accomplish. They've got a very, a lot of schedule. They work very hard. They tend to have, uh, lots of meetings and appointments and they're they're trying to do a lot they're doers busyness business right so conscious leadership is a lot about developing the inner part of your leadership it's it's not a um it's not telling you uh how to um uh, do some basic leadership things but it's talking about how you need to develop yourself as an effective leader. So starting with put purpose first, build your, build your business around purpose. And, and you as a leader need to be manifesting and embodying purpose. And then we go into leading with love or good grief. I was, I was on CNN yesterday and that guy I thought was pretty much the most ridiculous thing he'd ever heard. What do you mean lead with love? Businesses, it's all about competition. It's cutthroat. I mean, how can you be talking about love? That's ridiculous. That's where, and that's kind of woo, just kind of woo woo. 
Um, and we talk about integrity and the importance of integrity and finding win-win-win solutions and how to innovate and, and how to think long-term and how to uh, develop your team and how to, um, how to revitalize yourself and then how to continually learn and grow throughout, throughout your entire life. So that's all a bunch of inner work and most business people don't do much inner work. So in many con in ca cases, they didn't know how to be a conscious leader. So this is kind of, uh, this book is a practical book. It's, it's about inner development, but we have a lot of exercise, we have stories. We also have a lot of exercises and practices that you can do mm -hmm. to, become a to become love is a skill, integrity is a skill. Finding win-win solutions is a different framework of thinking. These are not easy, you have to work at them. You know, the 10,000 hours to master something, it probably takes 10,000 hours to master conscious leadership, so you better get going on it. It's not that easy, it's hard work. So, John, let, let's dive right in and, and explore. I mean, you referenced leading with love, which you know is, is certainly one of the more provocative uh, chapter titles that you have within the book. Um, what does that mean for you, and, and what informs your belief about leading with love? Well, think about love is um, the metaphors that we use to think about business force love to be stuck in the corporate closet. Mm -hmm. Dominant metaphors that we use that structure the way we think, and people are not conscious of the metaphors that they use, but the metaphors are the, are the models that we have of the world, the way it works. And the models that most people have, there is no place for love. It's the first model is war. They see this hyper competition that, that business is primarily about, sorry, Siri was trying to get into the act here. I had to, had to shut her down. <laughs> <laughs> She's also pro-love, I hear. She feels very unloved by me, I assure you. Uh, <laughs> so the first metaphor is war. And think about the way we, we the language we oftentimes use to describe business. We're, uh, we're gonna go, we're gonna destroy our competition. We're gonna kill the enemy. Um, yep. It's, it's uh, uh, we go to the war room. We, we have a staff and we have a line and we have troops. Well, I'm gonna get out and I'm gonna raise the morale of the troops. And yep. uh, uh, we have this continuous language that we're used that are oftentimes borrowing on war metaphors. And it's, it's long been a, a, a business tradition to talk about, um, uh, take no prisoners. We're gonna, <clears throat> you know, we're, we're, don't leave no one alive. You know, it's just this incredibly, you know, war-like atmosphere out there. We're not using war metaphors, we're often using Darwinian metaphors. It's survival mm -hmm. of the fittest. This is kill or be killed. It's a jungle out there. Or as Andy Grove and Intel said, only the paranoid survive. So there's this whole idea that, you know, we're, we're danger of going extinct at any time. So we've got to be, we got to be paranoid. We got to be careful. We got to be uh, hypervigilant and, uh, and then the third major metaphor we use, uh, metaphor group is is mostly sports yeah. games, right? We, let's get let's get to huddle together. Um, let's uh, who's going to quarterback this project? Or hey, I'm swinging for the fences, getting a home run, touchdown pass, slam dunk. Mm -hmm. And if you think about sports metaphors, they're always win lose metaphors, right? Somebody wins, somebody else loses. And so the frameworks that we use to think about business all involve intense competition. Now, competition is part of business. So 
So I'm not going to deny that. But it's not the prevailing dominant thing. The prevailing dominant thing in business is about creating value for other people, primarily customers. And uh, there's some competition involved in that, but it's, that's what it's about. It's about creating value for your customers and really for all your stakeholders. And one of the keys, one of the strongest virtues you can have in the workplace is love. I'm not talking about sexual love or romantic love. I'm talking about love where you just simply care about other people and you're kind and you're compassionate and you're caring, you're thoughtful, you're, you, you practice forgiveness and generosity, the basic virtues of love. And because that's what holds it all together, that's the glue that connects people and has them trust each other, work well together, share. It's, it's the most human thing we do in life is love. This idea that it's okay to love when you're home with your family and it's okay to love with your friends when you're out of work, but when you come into the office or you come into the store or the factory, check it at the door because we're going to war today or we got a game to win or we could, we may not survive the day because it's such so dangerous out there. Well, love is thrown in the corporate closet. And so one of the most important virtues we can have in the workplace to help us be, to help us win, to help us be successful, to help us achieve our highest potential as an organization, as leaders, we don't, we don't, we don't enlist it because it's seen as love is seen as weak. Yeah. And if you're in war, or you're in a if you're in a Darwinian survival game, or you're trying to win a, a heated game competition, love is going to make you weaker. And so it has no place. And yet, we found love is not make you weaker; it makes you stronger, because it's what binds groups together and teams together. So, lead with love. Lead with love is a is a very important principle. It's not woo woo at all. It's simple, good business sense, and it's. And frankly, because business has for a long time been very macho and hyper-competitive, dominated by, by, uh, by macho-type of thinking in men, it, yep. it softer side, the, the caring side, has not been fully expressed. It's time that be fully expressed. And competition's there. I'm not, I'm not going to deny it. I'm not saying it has to go away. I'm merely saying it's not and shouldn't be the predominant metaphor for the way the world works or the way business works. Well, thank you for that commentary, John. Um, let me remind our, our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm joined by Mike Useem, and our guest today is Whole Foods CEO, John Mackey, who is the co-author of the brand new book, Conscious Leadership, Elevating Humanity Through Business. Mike, why don't we bring you into the conversation? Yeah, John, first of all, thank you for joining the program. Uh, we have followed your work over the years, and it's a real privilege to have you here with us today. Picking up on, on what you were just saying, what do you think it's going to take for people who came of age in business with that killer instinct, the cutthroat Darwinian survival instinct, to come over to where you would have them take on a leadership role with, uh, with purpose and with love and, and so on? What, what, do you, what do you think would be some of the steps that a person who is drawn to it uh, intellectually, but behaviorally is not quite there yet, what are some of the steps you'd recommend they take to begin to rethink how they lead their enterprise? Of course, I recommend they read my book. <laughs> for, starters, for sure. 
but besides that, so, you know, I get kind of asked this question in an indirect way for a, a long time about conscious capitalism. How do we make businesses more conscious? How do we make them more conscious capitalistic? And, and here's the reality, the way I see it. It's very hard to change corporate cultures. Um, you need change agents. You need you need um, you need a new leadership that thinks differently, that wants to change it. You usually have to hire consultants. You have to take leadership team through it. You need to begin to hire differently. But so that's but what generally happens is old cultures don't change, but new entrepreneurs come along and they they take advantage of new ways of thinking. They're not trapped in the past. They're not trapped with their own legacies that they can't easily overcome. And new entrepreneurs create new business models and they're very successful competitively in the marketplace and they replace the old paradigm. I mean, that's the old joke. How do you make progress in the world? One funeral at a time. The old passes away and the new is not attached to legacy systems and can create new things. But when that also begins to happen, some of the legacy companies, when it begins to spread, they get new leadership and says, we're going to have to change. They won't lead the change, but they will react to it. And many of them will begin to make shifts when they feel like it's necessary for the survival of the company to make the shift. So we need, we need entrepreneurial companies to lead the way that can, 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 can model it and show yeah. that it works. John, a question just as a quick follow-up. Do you have a sense from your own direct experience that this is a grand phrase that history is a little bit on your side and that a new generation of employees coming into the workforce, they unequivocally are more interested in doing something that actually has a, a positive impact they, where they can make a difference. So uh, just the evolution of American culture, changes in American society and other countries as well. Do you think that this um, sort of a force from below, new employees, is going to uh, work to the advantage of more people becoming conscious leaders. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely think in terms of becoming more conscious leaders. Um, I'm a great believer in developmental evolution. I do think things evolve over time. And uh, I do believe that there are sort of stages of development and uh, uh, younger people have the advantage. They have the disadvantage, of course, that they, they haven't lived long enough to have much wisdom yet, um, but they have the advantage in that they can they get to stand on the shoulders of those who came before them, and it's they get to start at a higher place. But you still have to do the development, um, because I think the younger generation right now is is gets the purpose thing. Purpose is uh, become sort of everybody wants to feel like their work's making a difference in the world instead of just earning a living, if you go back 50 or 60 years ago, what do you mean, what's the purpose? I'm putting bread on the table. I'm, I'm providing for my family, that's the purpose. But now people want a lot more than that, right? They want, they want to put bread on the table, but they also want their work to count for something. They want to feel like it's making a difference. So I think the purpose one is, is already getting installed there. Now love, that's a bunch, that's, that's gonna be, I'm not, hey, there's not a whole lot of love being expressed in America these days. I just feel a lot of anger and a lot of hatred. So that one's we're going to have to we're going to have to work on that one. I'm not sure the younger generation is ready to to model that one yet. I haven't I have not seen it and and I but 
might need to be the generation that's coming after that. I'm not sure. Great. Thanks. Jeff, back to you. So, John, we have a, a colleague here at Wharton, Sagal Barsade, who focuses a lot on organizational culture um, and, you know, the sort of has, has taken her research and, and focused on a component of culture that she calls affective culture. So it's the emotional side of culture as opposed to the cognitive side, right? The cognitive side is about the stories we tell and what we reward and, um, you know, the, the folklore that develops in an organization. Um, but affective culture is about the emotions are present, th that are present. And, and I wonder, as we're talking about leading with love, um, if, if you're walking into a Whole Foods store, or you're walking into another organization and, and you're trying to diagnose how, how much love is here, how much are we seeing it exhibited? What kinds of emotions are you looking to see exhibited? Great question. Um, COVID's kind of put a little damper on my ability to travel around right now, but, um, and everybody's masked up and I got a social distance six feet, but we can talk pre-COVID and post-COVID because we will move sure, through sure. this. Um, I, I, I like to say that within about being in a Whole Foods market in about five minutes, I can tell whether that store is well-managed or not because I can, I can tell whether the people that I'm connecting to are afraid of me. Mm. If they're afraid of me, if they're, if they're like afraid of me, then I know that they're afraid of their store team leader and that the store is probably not being well managed and there's not, not enough love here. Now that's not, that's not common. So in fact, because it's not common, when it happens, I pick up on it almost immediately. Because right. the general thing when I come in the store is people are so excited that I'm visiting, there's so much love expressed, uh, people are so grateful to Whole Foods, they're grateful to me, they tell me their stories about how their lives have changed and and how they've been promoted five times since they got there and uh, uh, they're gonna stay there for the rest of their lives. And that's the kind of stuff I hear. So I definitely, I'm very sensitive to the overall emotional tone of the store. And, uh, and that's my chief way to gauge whether I think the store is being well managed or not. Because if people know I'm coming, they fix the store up to look good. Sure. But, but they can't change the consciousness and the feelings of the people there just because they want it to be, they want to impress mm -hmm. them. So I'll pick that up. And uh, uh, I think I hear all the time from customers, oh, I love going into Whole Foods Market. I just feel better when I'm there. Okay, why do they feel better? They feel better because they're picking up on that, on that same effective state that the team members are putting out, that they like being here, they're enjoying their work that the, there's a welcoming feeling towards the customers. Um, so customers sense it as well uh, in a well-managed store. And they also sense it in a store that's not being well-managed too, because I'll hear about those complaints. Um, so, yeah. Hey, you know, one thing I want to talk about. So mm -hmm. I, I, you're going to ask me questions, but I'll tell you one topic I want to talk about, because it's, I want to talk about find win-win-win solutions. Because you guys were talking about the business roundtable and stakeholders and uh, how much we're making progress. And I'm right now kind of on a little crusade because I think stakeholders are being completely misunderstood. They're being misunderstood. The stakeholder theory is being misunderstood by the media and by many intellectuals. And it's being increasingly misunderstood by business leaders. And the reason why is because 
they're still stuck in a metaphor or a narrative about win-lose. And so from their perspective, business is, is, is a bunch of greedy bastards are running around lining their own pockets, causing inequality, causing they're getting rich, other people are getting poor. So somebody gets rich, somebody else gets poor, somebody's winning, somebody's losing. And so they see stakeholder theory as at last, the greedy bastards aren't gonna win anymore. The, you know, the, 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 the Bill Gates of the world aren't going to get there. They're getting too much of it. There's a pie, a fixed pie, and they're taking a really big piece of it. And that causes inequality, and that's unfair. What we need to do is get, you know, more equal cuts of the pie. So they've got this zero-sum thinking about the world and a win-lose framework. And so stakeholder theory gets crammed into that thinking. So they see, okay, well, now the investors are going to get less, and now we're going to have social responsibility. Now we're going to care more about the environment. Now the employees are going to get paid more. Now the customers are going to get a better deal. But they all see that as coming at the expense of the investors. So it's still sort of a zero-sum win-lose mentality, only now the investors are going to be the losers instead of the winners. Sure. Obviously, that's a complete misunderstanding of what stakeholder theory is. Because stakeholder theory is about finding strategies. It's aware that making you aware that these stakeholders are interdependent on one another. And we have to manage the business in such a way that each of the stakeholders is flourishing. Each is winning. It's not even about balancing because balancing is like on a seesaw, you balance, but that means one goes up and one goes down. The whole idea is to, is to create strategies where all are, all are flourishing and all are improving and all are getting better. So, and, and customers are getting higher quality and better prices and better selection and better service. And, and team members are getting higher pay, better benefits, more opportunities to learn and grow and advance. Suppliers are flourishing. Their businesses are growing along with yours. Investors are making more money. The stock price is going up. Social responsibility is something that we can do because we're flourishing and we're rich and we can give more to these folks out of generosity and kindness. We can be more environmentally sensitive because we now can afford to do so. Um, it's win, win, win. And until we replace that win-lose framework with a win, 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 which is fourth chapter of our book, then stakeholder theory is gonna be misunderstood and business is still gonna be put in this impossible situation where if it's successful, it's bad. <laughs> when, when businesses are successful, should be successful for everyone including the investors. So the investors don't lose, they win too, but so does everybody else. It's a win-win-win game. And I have found in life, very few people are able to think win-win-win. Good for you, good for me, good for all of us. Instead, they think someone else is winning, then I'm losing, and it's not fair, or vice versa. So John, just to stay on the topic, thinking about win-win relations between stakeholders, all should benefit uh, none should be uh, a win-lose kind of relationship. Take that into your decision to begin a conversation with Amazon about becoming part of Amazon. Um, and so to just walk us through, it's in your book, but just walk us through how in a sense that was playing out uh, what you said just before the break, we want to create um, pluses between stakeholders and not uh, oppositional relations. So John, over to you. Well, a little bit of background on it. So back in 2017, 
Voltage Market was uh, we got shareholder activists. Our our stock price had fallen, and the shareholder activists came in and they they wanted us to change our board and they wanted us to put the company up for sale, and they were gonna they were gonna go into a, a proxy battle with this or they were gonna go into a media campaign to try to coerce us to do those both of those things we met with and that was Jana partners we met with them and they said that's what we want you to do and if you don't do it we're going to make you do it so we began to look around for a win-win-win solution to this problem and we looked at many different things one would be to fight Jana in a PR battle and then a proxy battle and just say you guys own 8.8 percent .8 of the company but that doesn't make you control the company they were, they were in it to, as many shareholder activists do, to advocate for short-term moves that would get the stock price up and then they could sell it for a profit or to force the company up for bid and then they might get a higher price, but then maybe the company would be sold to somebody that wouldn't have our best long-term interest in, in play. So one, was to, one solution for us was to fight Jana. We considered that and we developed a whole campaign to do just that. A second alternative we considered was to take the company private. We go private and we no longer be a public company, but to do that, we'd have to raise massive quantities of debt. And we thought loading up our balance sheet on debt might risk the company's ability to be flexible and invest in the future and might risk bankruptcy if, if we got into like a COVID crisis, for example, or something terrible happened. Um, Another solution was to sell the company to somebody that would be friendly like Warren Buffett. We contacted Warren Buffett and uh, well, he likes many things about Whole Foods, he did not want to own us. Um, and, uh, and so we were kind of, we couldn't figure it out. We couldn't figure out a win-win-win solution. So, um, but I just struggled with it. I kept asking that question over and over again. What's the win-win-win solution here? What will be good for every one of our stakeholders? And one day I woke up and the first thought that popped in my brain when I, when I was lying in bed was, what about Amazon? Would they be interested? And it was like, and immediately I knew that was gonna be a win-win-win solution. And because I thought that was gonna be good for every stakeholder if they were interested. So I had met Jeff Bezos a year before and I, I really liked him and I'd long admired Amazon as a company and what they'd done and how they transformed the world through um, the internet. So we made an inquiry to them and turned out they were very interested. And just a few days after that, I flew to um, Seattle with three of my senior executives and we sat down and we met with Jeff Bezos and three of his senior executives um, and had a three hour conversation. And I, I make a joke that it was like we fell in love, love at first sight because when you fall in love, at some point, you have what we can call the conversation, where you have this really long conversation, you have a meeting of minds and a meeting of hearts, and you realize, oh my God, I think she or he could be the one. Well, that's how Whole Foods felt after it talked to Amazon and after it talked to Jeff and his team. We went away to a restaurant, and we were just looking at each other saying, that was an incredible conversation. Those guys are so smart. They seemed so authentic. We were finishing each other's sentences or we're talking about all the things we could do together. And we were super excited. And then we asked, we looked around and we said, almost simultaneously, gosh, do you think they liked us too? And it turned out they did because three days later, they sent an entire team down to Austin uh, where we're headquartered. And we met with them to 
hammer out the basics of what a deal together might look like. Six weeks after we'd had the first meeting in, in Seattle, we'd signed a merger agreement. So we moved extremely quickly. And before the summer was out, the merger had been completed. It's been a win-win-win because it's been good to absolutely every stakeholder at Whole Foods. How's it been good for our customers? Well, we've had three price cuts and we've got a fourth one uh, happening right now. What about um, uh, delivery and internet? That is something Whole Foods was not doing very well. And now with Amazon, thank God we were able to gear up for COVID and we've, been, we've, uh, we've tripled our sales in that category in the last quarter from the previous year. It was good for our team members. Since Amazon came in, one of the first things they did was they raised starting minimum wages at Whole Foods to $15 an hour. So 90,000 people, because you know they have to raise the people to 15, but people that were 15, you better raise to 17. And, and so it had this ripple effect of increasing wages to about um, uh, 90,000 people working for the company. Only many of the leaders didn't get a pay increase. Um, was it good for our um, uh, suppliers? We, we, we got a lot of media that this was going to be a disaster for the local suppliers, that Amazon was going to centralize everything. And the, the opposite occurred. In fact, Whole Foods has doubled down on connecting with our local suppliers. And Amazon did not try to change anything there at all. So it has been very good for our suppliers because many of them also now had another um, a supply chain outlet because Amazon started selling those products online. They started selling them in their Amazon Fresh. And so it's been a really good thing for our suppliers. What about the investors? Well, at the end of the day, from the time we started selling, talking to Amazon until the day, day they closed, we had like a 35% increase in the stock price worth about $4 billion. So our investors won as well. What about these, the communities? That's been a win-win too. The Amazon's been very supportive of our foundations, all the donations Whole Foods does, everything we've been able to do, Amazon has not only not stopped, but they've contributed to it. They've been very generous. So every one of our stakeholders has won through that deal. And so people say how the deal's going, it's not, you know, it's not perfect, it's like a marriage. I mean, I love 99% of the things about my wife and 1% drive me crazy. Well. You know, I mean, we love almost everything about Amazon, but some stuff, their cultural differences and we have our challenges, we got to work them out. But overall, if we had to, we do the same decision again today. That we did three years ago. Not a very specific follow-up question then back to Jeff here. You could describe what was in your mind when you woke up one morning and you said Amazon. The, the light bulb came on, it's worked out very well. What led to the, your vector going in that direction? I think, here's what I believe. I believe that when you put the mind intensely focused on trying to get a question answered, what's the win-win-win solution? I kept asking that question. I didn't get an answer, but I put, it's like using a technology metaphor, which I'll use in this case, but I don't think is the best way to understand corporations or the world. But I did a deep search. I put it, I did, I, I did a deep search for the answer to that question and my subconscious worked on it. And then one day when I woke up, cause it was the first thing I thought of when I woke up, I'd been, that search was answered, Amazon. And uh, yeah, that's what I think. I actually think when we make an intense focus on a question, an answer will emerge if we don't give up. If we continue to hold it in our minds and our thoughts and our consciousness, if we say, 
I, I want to know what the win-win-win is here. We will get an answer if we're patient enough because the mind is powerful. Great. Thank you on that. Jeff, back to you. All right. Let me start out and just remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and our guest today is Whole Foods CEO John Mackey, who is also co-author of the new book, Conscious Leadership. Um, John, I want to ask you one more question in the context of um, creating win-win-win solutions and thinking about stakeholders, um, and then I want to make sure we have some time to do uh, a, a little bit of dialogue around teams and culture, too. Um, but the, the question around stakeholders is, what, what systems or what feedback loops do you set up so that the wins that you're envisioning on behalf of the stakeholders, you're able to check and measure that those things are, you know, both actually occurring and have the same value to the stakeholders that, that you've assumed? That's such a great question. And let me, before I try to give an answer, let me just preface it by saying nobody yet has developed. We have good, we have good systems to measure, obviously, um, investors, right? I mean, we can see we, we've got a whole accounting system that measures profitability, EBITDA, returns on invested capital. We got a stock market that can measure market prices. And so we're very sophisticated uh, regarding the investor stakeholder. We are far less sophisticated with measurement for virtually every other stakeholders. So I, I can tell you what Whole Foods does. And, uh, and, uh, but I can tell you that we need actually the academic community. There's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of rewards ahead for the academics that can can create a complete stakeholder measurement system that they can then go out and consult on. And uh, so I'm putting that challenge out to the academic community because I think the answers will come there. Those PhDs. It's another another win for another stakeholder, right? That's right. The, 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 the intellectuals and the academy, that's a good answer. That's a good question to work on. Good a lot of PhDs could be a good, some good doctor, doctoral dissertations. Dissertations, yeah. Okay, starting on customers. Obviously the most, the, the easiest and simplest way that every business can measure to customers is, are you, are you gaining them or losing them, right? So part of that satisfaction you can measure is simply your sales. And whether your same store sales are going up or down, uh, that's a that's a not a very precise it's a precise measurement, but it's not very colorful. You don't know exactly know why they're leaving or coming or going or what they're unhappy about. And I think most corporations, I know Whole Foods, we spend a lot of time talking to our customers, and we do a lot of time measuring their satisfaction and what they're happy about, what they're unhappy about. Um, we've been recently put in our registers for our customers before they leave to just simply say what happened on your visit today, rate it. And, and if they don't give it a four or five, then it's like, where were you dissatisfied or where can we improve? So that's one simple information gathering. But a, lo a lot of what you do, you know, you have a net promoter score. That's another thing you can do that uh, many companies do effectively. We like to dive a little deeper and we, we've kind of got our cu customers grouped into what we call the, uh, the core customers, those who are shopping there just about every week and filling up their grocery carts. We have occasional customers. 
that just come in occasionally maybe to get lunch or, um, you know, just picking up a bottle of wine or something like that. And we, and we know we have customers that are, we call special occasion shoppers, meaning they come in for Thanksgiving or they're, they're going to have a big dinner party and they want the really best cheese or the best wine or the best foods that they can get. Um, and uh, uh, then there's those customers that just shop around. They just, you know, they shop everywhere and they, Whole Foods is one of the places to shop. So a lot of different categories for people. Um, obviously for us, the core customers are most important because they, it's a 20-80 rule, 20% 20, 20 of our customers produce 80% of our sales. And so those are the most important ones that you have to understand. And those customers we know, they've been the ones that in the merger have been most worried that Whole Foods was gonna change in negative ways. So we got that when we, when we would talk with them, it's like, please don't change. We love Whole Foods the way it is, please don't change. So they were very fearful and that marketing data showed up as we did the research. So we spent time trying to reassure them that any changes you see are gonna be positive, not negative, like our price reductions and things like that. So that you measure customers. Uh, we, we have something in Whole Foods for team members we call the cultural compass, where we measure, we just got a cultural compass report in in the last week. So I'll, I will share one minor data point with you that uh, is not, you know, it's not like a big public announcement. I just don't think it's particularly any big deal, but it will show how important it is. Whole Foods has the exact same benefits across the company. So it doesn't matter what position you're in. If you are, um, if you're the CEO of the company like me, you get the exact same benefits if you're a cashier in one of our stores. There's not, it's just the same benefits. The only difference is seniority. The more service hours you have, then you, you can you, you get, Health insurance gets a little cheaper the longer you work there. Um, you get more paid time off the longer you work there. So there's some seniority, but that's just based on seniority, not position. And we know from the comp cultural compass, my big takeaway from the most recent one is that on our benefits program, the people in the stores think we have really good benefits. And, uh, but the people working in our corporate offices don't think the benefits are that great. And the reason why is they compare those benefits to what you might be getting at Google or, or Amazon itself, because Whole Foods doesn't have the same benefits, or, or Apple or some other tech company because they could be working at. And the people in our stores compare the benefits to what they might get at, at Walmart or Kroger or one of, the, you know, one of the supermarkets they compete against. So that was very interesting information. And now we're trying to figure out a win-win-win solution to that problem. And uh, I will tell you, we, have, it's, it's, we haven't come up with it yet, but um, we're, we're, we're thinking it through. And then supplier, but you can see, work your way through here, and I, you guys wanna move on to another question, but um, that's fine. But we do have ways to try to measure stakeholder satisfaction, but it's a huge opportunity for companies to do a lot better, a lot better at. All right. Yeah, we, we do somehow, John, we only have uh, a couple minutes left in this dialogue here. So I, I get rambling on and you, you should interrupt me and cut me off. No, no sweat. But I, I appreciate that. I mean, the, they're complicated questions and I appreciate the depth in which um, you are you're going into to answer them. Mike, um, why, why don't you uh, take us out with a final question here? So, John, uh, very helpful, I think, at this point for the listeners who have been taking in your, your thinking if you could sum it up and offer them some guidance, let's say they're drawn to this multi-stakeholder integrated win-win thinking, 
um, whatever the enterprise they might be running or one day will be running, what line of advice would you have for them personally about conscious capitalism and then about conscious leadership? Well, on conscious capitalism, there is an there is a movement, there is an organization, and you can you can check out the website consciouscapitalism.org, so you can get involved in 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 the movement. We have chapters in cities not only in the United States but all around the world, so you can get involved, and that's what you should do. And of course, read the book, but mainly you should meet other conscious capitalists. If you feel an affinity to this, you should become a participant in it because it'll be richer for you if you're with people. If you you got to find your tribe. This could be your tribe, so check it out. Maybe it is. Regarding conscious leadership, it's an inner journey. You gotta do the work. L leading with love is a skill. You have to develop it. Integrity is not natural to people. K children start out as pathological liars. As soon as they learn how to talk, they start lying. Because they, they don't wanna get in trouble, so they get very skillful at it. You have to unlearn that. You have to learn integrity. You have to practice it all the time because it's not natural for people to do. And all of these areas are areas that in the book, we give practical suggestions and practices people can do because you have to do the inner work. There's no shortcut to it. There's no magic wand you can wave. You have to do the work. You have to do the training, but get on with it because it's worth it. You'll get paid back 10 X at least. It's a 10 X return or more. And so Jeff, as I think uh, we're sort of in the, we're in the same club. It's hard to get it right, but everybody can work to get it right. And John, I, I want to ask one final question as, um, as we wrap up our dialogue here. Uh, I was really appreciative of the fact that you spent a chapter on revitalization. And so mm -hmm. I wonder if, if you could just offer a tip um, for our listeners, um, and frankly for Mike and I, on how to practice revitalization. Yeah. So. I'll give you like we the, the the quickest tip I can tell you is don't get enough sleep. We have a workaholic culture where people are boasting about how hard they're working and they're and that how little sleep they get by. They're just burning themselves out. Make sure you get enough sleep. Sleep is the best way to renew ourselves. And then of course you've got to you've got to um, and then managing stress. So learning how to relax, whether it be through meditation or music or walks in nature, you have to deal with stress. If you're, if you're running, if you're working hard, stress is going to wear you down. You got to deal with it. But diet's important. Movement's important. Um, connecting with other people is important. And that's all, all in this chapter. But we have to revitalize ourselves. I'm kind of proud of the fact I've been doing this for 42 years. And in some ways I'm healthier today than I was 20 years ago, because I paid a lot of attention to revitalization. Don't, don't underestimate its importance. Yeah, and, and you know, really appreciate that you, you highlight within the book, not only its importance, but the fact that it, it is a practice, just as you're talking about, and it is about developing the rhythms and the habits with the same kind of discipline uh, that you would take on the business challenges of the world. So. Um, John, we, you know, I, I know on behalf of uh, Mike and our uh, program director, Patty Hall, we, we just want to say thank you for coming on the show today. We've really enjoyed the dialogue and all the work that you're doing around conscious leadership. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Mike. It's been a great talking to you guys. I hope I meet you in the flesh someday. Great. All right. John. That sounds perfect. Um, for our listeners, we want to say thank you all so much for joining us. 
Uh, if you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com and be sure to follow our show on Twitter at SXM Business. Uh, Mike, as we move to wrap up here, I can, I can uh, come over to you for a 30-second after-action review. A headline that you'll take with you. Headline, uh, we're all in the same club. We're kind of in the same business, and that is um, everybody can step forward and do more, whether it's uh, at a senior position or a frontline position. And it's an act of will. We just got to decide to do it. And I think we've had a great example here of somebody who has done that in his own life and uh, wonderfully illustrates the idea everybody can lead. Yeah, and I think for me, as, as we move to wrap up here, uh, I'm just going to emphasize John's exhortation to lead with love. Um, it may seem counterintuitive at first, uh, but I, I think the more that you're conscious of its presence in the way that you interact with employees and customers and other stakeholders, uh, just you know, the, the more impact and value you'll see it creating. So again, a special thank you to our guest, John Mackey. I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. I'm Jeff Klein. Uh, thanks to Mike for joining me here today. You've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 